We'll consider the following words of Bible teacher David Paulison, who went to be with the Lord just a few years ago. He writes this, I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by my emptiness and, and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own needs. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much, I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free falling into void? Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. Ugh. Sorry to start the sermon off on such a downer. This is despondency, grimness, and misery at its finest. David Pallison titled these words the Anti-Psalm 23. And these words capture a vivid picture of what the self-focused life looks like. The Anti-Psalm depicts the subjective experience of life when God's fades from a person's perspective. It's the heart attitude of, of someone and who thinks, I'm all alone in this world. And Pallison's anti-psalm cleverly but sober-mindedly outlines the, the ambitious yet ultimately purposeless nature of the life lived without God. Loneliness is an epidemic in our day and age it runs rampant in our society, even in the church. And what, anti, what Pallison's anti-Psalm shows us is the loneliest people are the people who suffer severe lack. Want is abounding but never filled. And that deep feeling of lack is driven by a heart that places the self at the center. Want abounds when self is the most important. In the battle of the Christian life, 
is a back and forth battle between finding the true center. The problem is, you and I, we were never intended to be the center. Now I ask you this question, are, are the words of anti-Psalm 23 familiar to you? Can you relate to them? If you're honest with yourself, at some point in your life, anti-Psalm 23 grumbles from your heart. You are prone to sing that song because your eyes so frequently drift away from the true center. Have you felt alone recently? Want has highlighted your thoughts. Lack has invaded your heart. And why is that? Could it be, again, that you're off-center? You've given in to the lie that you are alone because your eyes have drifted. They've drifted away from the Savior, from the one who not only promised to be with his people, but who actually is with his people. And when you lose sight of this truth, all sorts of crazy thoughts can begin running through your mind. Anti-Psalm 23 in bits and pieces or, or even in whole, they threaten to overturn us. Thankfully, anti-Psalm 23 is not in the Bible. Psalm 23 is. You have a good God who's with you. You have a God who's conquered death. You have a God who is the good shepherd. If you haven't done so already, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 23. The 23rd Psalm is perhaps the most fam famous and familiar of all the Psalms. And considering our present context in the 21st century, how is it that in tumultuous times of global, national, and even local chaos, you can and should be able to walk in peace, angst-free, with a hopeful and a, a composed inner disposition? Is it even reasonable to expect that a Christian walk in such manner? Is it realistic? Well, if it's possible and, and even expected that a Christian would walk in such a manner, what makes it possible for him or her to do so? The answer to all these questions can be found, again, in Psalm 23. You have a good shepherd who walks with you. You have a good shepherd who walks with you, and as you learn to refocus everything back onto him, my hope is that you'll find that no matter what you're going through, no matter what's happening in the world, no matter how much you think you lack, you actually have everything you need. And the Christian life is about constantly reorienting your focus back to the central person of the human story, Jesus the Christ. And so with that in mind, the main idea, the main point of today's sermon is this. Life without lack comes to us by cultivating an awareness of the Good Shepherd. Life without lack, life without want, comes to us by cultivating an awareness of the Good Shepherd. The goal of today's sermon 
is to help cultivate that awareness. And in order to help us cultivate this awareness, let's look at three different aspects of the shepherd imagery from Psalm 23. I'll give them to you up front. Number one, the Lord as David's shepherd. Number two, the Father as Jesus's shepherd. And third and finally, the Son as our shepherd. We'll, fo- we'll focus primarily on the four verse, the first four verses of this great psalm. So number one, the Lord as David's shepherd. Now you know David himself was a shepherd. He knew the ins and outs. He knew the role and responsibility of being a shepherd. And he completely understood how deep and constant the needs of sheep are. He knew that they have minds of their own. They tend to wander off in strange directions and get lost in the most dangerous of predicaments. There are diseases to diagnose and and treat, predators to warn and fend off against. And then there's that manure pile that needs to be disposed of realistically. Utilizing the imagery of what came natural to him, David depicts his own life as that of a lamb. And he begins with the most important line of the entire poem. Look there in verse 1. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now this verse sets the tone for everything else in the psalm. It drives the psalm all the way to the end in verse 6. And in many cultures, within the ancient Near Eastern culture and context, including Israel, there was this overlap in the title of a shepherd and that of a king. And by naming the Lord, that's the proper name, Yahweh, Jehovah, as shepherd, David expressed his willingness to live under the authority of this reign, of his reign. Essentially, he was saying, I am subject to this shepherd king. I humble myself. I, David, humble myself under his mighty hand. Moreover, David's relationship with this covenant kingly God was one of dependence and satisfaction. David recognizes his deep need for the Lord. He is not so prideful to think that he can live without someone greater than himself to provide nourishment guidance, and protection. These three are the the main responsibilities of a shepherd. They are the, the three categories that you will find in these first four verses. The sheep will suffer lack and want without a shepherd. Thus, David presents the most serene picture of how the Lord meets his needs. First, it's in nourishment and in provision. Look there in verse two and following. David says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. These words address both the the physical aspect and the spiritual. Green pastures for food and still waters for drink. How many times had the, the Lord provided for David, especially as he was on the run from Saul, at Nob, 
In 1 Samuel 21, David received bread from Ahimelech. David also received bread and drink from Abigail in 1 Samuel 25. And then you probably know the famous story where three of David's mighty men risked their very own lives to acquire water from the well of Bethlehem, which indeed he doesn't even drink because they put their lifeblood on the line. All this to say, he had no physical lack. And through various means, the Lord provided for him. And he could be at peace knowing that his God has never failed him. And his inner man, his, his soul, need not fret despite all of the outward turmoil. And you have this guidance that the shepherd, the Lord, provides to David. He says there in verse 3, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now recall, not once, but twice, David had a chance to slaughter, to kill his evil pursuer, Saul. Choose one path to immediate kingship, or choose another to patiently wait. And with the Lord's name on the line and his own personal integrity, David, by the leading of the Lord, his shepherd, chose to spare Saul. He chose to spare his enemy. And Samuel had already anointed Jesse's son as king at that point in time. He could have taken matters into his own hand. Nevertheless, because his good shepherd name was on the line, David could spare his enemy's life. The Lord was big enough. The Lord was magnified enough in David's heart such that he did not need his own name exalted when the time was not right. He had everything he needed in the Lord. Well, David could say the Lord guided him because he was constantly aware of the Lord's presence in his life. It was not an afterthought. It was an ever-present thought at the forefront of his heart. And then finally, the, the shepherd king grants David protection. Look there in verse 4. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. How marvelous a, a promise. It's here where we come to the exact center of the psalm in the phrase, you are with me. You are with me. It was an anchoring truth grounding David's life. And the knowledge of God's intimate presence with his people is what enables them to make it through anything. I've already mentioned Saul as enemies. Several others sought David's life. You probably know from Sunday school lessons, his own son Absalom, Goliath and the, the Philistines and several other foreign armies. Sometimes the path we're required to walk is one where we encounter death and evil. And when the Lord was with David, he warded off his enemies with his rod. And the staff prodded and, and directed the sheep. It's firm but gentle touch prodded the sheep to keep on walking even when they couldn't see anything around them in the darkest of valleys. When danger surrounded David, 
It was a comfort to know that the Lord would not allow for his ultimate demise. And then the the imagery shifts to a, a gracious host. The themes of verses one through four loosely repeat themselves in five and six. Nourishment and protection. Look there in verse five. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Those who've been invited to eat God's gracious fare will not be harmed even when their enemies are around. The Lord extravagantly provides for him even more than he needs. And the Lord welcomes his guests with a hospitable and generous recognition with oil pouring over the head of his guests. Then guidance comes to the guests of this great host. They have no worry to ever think that they are in the wrong place because they're given access to the never-ending presence of this gracious shepherd host. And what a privilege it is to dine at the table and to dwell in the house of the Lord. God was good to his chosen shepherd king in David. And in the rocky highs and lows of his life, David's shepherd king was with him. Even though David lived a royal life, his life was far from easy. Indeed, it was fraught with difficulty. First Samuel chapter 30 verse 1 says this, and David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Now time fails me to unpack the context of that verse. Let's just say that he was in a tough situation. People were angry at him. Would it actually have not been a serious temptation for him to begin questioning everything, including God's hand over him? And usually when the questions begin to pile up, that's when we start to look inward. That's when we begin to sing the words of anti-Psalm 23. Self-focused thoughts after self-focused thought eventually builds an inventory of hopelessness and, and despair. But we don't find that in the words of David. Look at that second, or you're not, you're not there, but let me read it for you. That second half of that verse in 1 Samuel 30, verse 1, it says, But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Instead, we come across the otherworldly peace from a weathered man. We hear about a peace that surpasses all understanding. How does this happen? David experienced life without lack because the Lord was with him and he was aware of it. David longs for his readers to defeat ungodly want in their hearts by also turning to the shepherd. It even as we read this psalm, it's not intended to just keep us at David both as shepherd king himself, David, and as lamb, he foreshadowed another. David's life, you know, pointed to Jesus. David was a type, a prefiguring of another king, human kingly shepherd who would come after him. 
In fact, he would come as David's greater son, and his name was Jesus. And like David, he also came from the tribe of Judah, born in the town of Bethlehem. And David was both shepherd and sheep. Same with Jesus. When Jesus came to this earth from heaven, he was also called to trust. Jesus was called by his father, his heavenly father, to follow him as his own good shepherd. For we know at times, David, he failed to follow the voice of his good shepherd. You know through the biblical account that he sinned grievously, revealing his failure as shepherd over all Israel. Thus Jesus came. And secondly, we examine the Father as Jesus' shepherd. When Jesus came from heaven, he did something that had never been done before. He permanently took on flesh to become a man. And in doing so, he became an individual human being exercising the gift of human emotion, human thoughts, and a human will. And as a human, Jesus had to entrust himself to the will of God his Father. And his Father, the Lord, Yahweh, had a plan for Jesus, a plan we know that would eventually lead to his death and burial. And Jesus trusted his Father, not worrying that he would lead him astray, but that his Father had a a glorious plan in mind. And he believed the work that his Father had for him to do was good, honoring, and even appetizing. I know that might sound a a little weird. Consider Jesus' words from John chapter 4, verse 34. When Jesus' disciples tell Jesus to eat, Jesus responds by saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus thrived. He thrived on a commitment to go where his father led him. And doing the work of his father provided him nourishment and and energy, metaphorically speaking. And as one in submission to the good shepherd, Jesus could not help but to give himself to the purposes of his good father. There was nothing that pleased Jesus more You would think that doing the will of God requires energy, not the other way around. Well, I liken it to someone who is is so committed to the task that God has called him or her to that the person can't help but to do it. Some of you work because you have to in order to pay the bills, which is perfectly fine. Others of you are in your profession, work in your profession, because you can't see yourself doing anything else. It's almost life-giving for you. It's work, but you thrive off of it, whether you're a a teacher, a healthcare professional, even a stay-at-home mom, a researcher, or even a pastor. You can't imagine not doing it. And to not do it would be to essentially starve yourself. Well, the same for Jesus, only he was perfect in, in all that he did And he was perfect because he was following the will of his father as his father led him. 
And the good shepherd in the Father led his son wherever he needed to be. Now, as the true lamb, Jesus found rest and satisfaction in the good shepherd. There's hardly a a better picture of complete dependence from sheep to shepherd than Jesus' prayer life. Consider a couple of verses. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, that is Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Luke chapter 6, verse 12, in those days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. The precious lamb followed the good shepherd by being on his knees. And speaking of a man on his knees, that was the same position Jesus was as he prepared in the Garden of Gethsemane to enter into the valley of the shadow of death. And in that stark scene, you have this back and forth between the good shepherd and the Lamb of God. And in the darkest moment, Jesus entrusts himself into the hands of the shepherd who in this case withheld his hand of protection. In this lone moment in the history of mankind, the good shepherd, God the Father, withheld his protecting presence from his very son. Jesus, the true lamb, tasted of death as a sacrifice. And the Lord, the the good shepherd, allowed his Passover lamb to walk through the valley of the shadow of death alone. No rod, no staff. Not because he didn't love his son, he did. But because he loves you and he loves me. The good shepherd led his son to the cross of Calvary so that he could make you his sons and daughters. And the Lamb of God ventured into the valley of the shadow of death, led by his Father, trusting him that it was the only way, because it was. And if the Lamb of God had not followed the shepherd's directive to go up that hill on that fateful Good Friday, you and I would have no hope today. But Jesus wasn't just any lamb He wasn't one to stray from the voice of his shepherd like the rest of us all are, including David. He heard the shepherd's voice and he listened. You heard Isaiah 53 earlier. Now hear Isaiah 53 verse 7. The text says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The very lamb, the very lamb of God, trusted that he had no lack as he followed his good shepherd. The lamb who was slain has also himself become the good shepherd. And thus, third and finally, Psalm Psalm 23 speaks to us of the son 
as our shepherd, the Son as our shepherd. Now again, have you come to grips that you, like the rest of God's people, are one of many sheep? Sheep are not the first thought that comes to our mind in our pomp and pride. We'd rather think of ourselves as smart, savvy, and slick beings. I mean, this is the Silicon Valley with some of the brightest minds in the world. Yes, we are God's image bearers, but yes, we also are sheep, and we need a shepherd. And so when I say that the Son is our shepherd, that is not to say that the the Lord, God the Father, is not our shepherd. He is. Yet while the Old Testament portrays Yahweh the Lord as Israel's shepherd, the New Testament identifies Jesus as our shepherd. Jesus said so himself. Listen to his words from John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Well, truly, it's in uncertain times like our own where we plainly realize our significant need for nourishment, for protection, and guidance. What a time to be alive, right, in 2024. Thankfully, the Lord is so gracious to open up the eyes of his people to see how foolish it is to trust in themselves. Solutions found within always lead to misery. Again, anti-psalm. And the fail rate for those who trust in themselves is 100%. However, when you remove yourself from the center, confessing your need for Christ as your shepherd, he offers you so much more. Jesus frees you from yourself. Christ nourishes you and quenches your thirst with himself. He says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says to you, look no further. Your lack will only multiply as you look away from me. However, if you come to me, I will fill you up. Brothers and sisters, take a moment to reflect on your own life. Has there ever been a moment in your life after having placed all the marbles in the basket of Christ for that situation, after truly trusting in him, has there ever been a situation where Jesus has let you down? Has he ever crashed and burned on his way to help you? I'm not afraid to ask that question because Christ has never failed to deliver. Now, he might not deliver in the way that you want him to deliver with regard to your situation, but I'm sure of it. He has helped you. And why such confidence? Because he defeated humanity's greatest problem. 
And he didn't do it far off, removed from that situation. He stepped into the situation, taking on human flesh, suffering to the point of death, and slayed death itself through his resurrection. He didn't cheat death, he killed it. And if Christ holds the power over death, how could he let you down when you put all the marbles of your life into his basket? As your shepherd, he will indeed lead you down peaceful paths where he himself will be your peace. He will satisfy your every need, including the want in your heart. If you're not a Christian today, you need to know that Jesus has come to save you from the penalty of your sin, the penalty being hell, eternal hell. And as a shepherd, he wants to lead you down the path to life. He promises you eternal life and he promises you true peace if you will stop looking to yourself in sin and begin to look to him in repentance and faith. If you place all your marbles in his basket, he will save you from the eternal death of hell that you deserve for your sin. The little lambs who belong to Jesus by faith, trusting in his sacrifice on the cross for their sins, they will find life in him. And today, this first Sunday of February, you can even now enter his fold if you'll give up your sin and embrace him in childlike trust. Will you believe? For us Christians also, it's important to consider these issues because at some point, He will lead you down a path where everything indeed is pitch black. Perhaps you're wading through the dark valley right now as you sit in that pew. For me, one particular story struck a a deep chord in my heart. There's a a Christian author named Tim Challies. He's also a pastor. You may know him. He's a pretty well-known in the Christian blogosphere. And a few years back, he shared that his, his 20-year-old son died suddenly after experiencing a, a sudden seizure. And soon after it happened, Charlie's wrote a brief article titled, My Son, My Dear Son Has Gone to Be with the Lord. Here's his introductory paragraph of that writing. He says, in all the years I've been writing, I've never had to type words more difficult, more devastating than these. Yesterday, the Lord called my son to himself, my dear son, my sweet son, my kind son, my godly son, my only son. I can't even imagine the the pain in, in the loss. Do you think Tim Challies is tempted to cry out the words of the anti psalm when he experienced that situation. The path is filled with darkness, but he, Tim, trusts that Jesus still walks with him. And I know he trusts because of what he wrote later, actually reflecting on Psalm 23. This is from his book, The Seasons of Sorrow. He he writes, quote, and I will follow him, that's Jesus. I will follow him singing this song in the darkness, meditating upon its truth with every step. I'd rather face my trial with David's psalm in my ear than with Aaron's staff in my hand, with Joshua's army at my side, with Solomon's gold in my pocket. 
I'd rather know the words to this one song than of all the great hymns of the Christian faith. I'd rather lose everything with my shepherd beside me than, the, than gain the whole world alone. Yes, I can bear the loss of my son as long as I know the presence of my shepherd. I can walk this path, I can pass through this dark valley if only my shepherd guides me, if only he leads the way, end quote. Brothers and sisters, there will eventually come a point, unless the Lord returns before then, where he will also lead you down that path. And the moment to prepare for that is not then, it is now. And at some point, you will be tempted to feel like he has abandoned you. And maybe even today, you feel like he's abandoned you. But it's exactly at that point where you will need to remember that Jesus does not forsake his own because he took care of everything at the cross. You should be abandoned for your sin, but you won't be because he was. And as it relates to death, you not only have someone who tasted it for you, but you have someone who will walk with it through you as you yourself experience it, whether it be you or your loved ones. Perhaps the worst thing that, than death itself is to have to face it alone. But for the Christian, no matter your earthly circumstance, you will never be alone Christ is with you, brothers and sisters. Christ is your shepherd. Christ cannot abandon you because his father never ultimately abandoned him. By the power of the Spirit, God raised his son from the dead. And the foundation for any type of no abandonment theology, namely the theology that God would leave you or forsake you, that is the resurrection That's the foundation, that God will never abandon you. The resurrection grounds us in the unbreakable promise that in Christ, we will never be abandoned. Therefore, you have no lack. You have no want. You are not alone. And indeed, it's Christ's invitation for you to come and commune with him and be with him forever. There's something that finds itself in every single culture of every place on earth since the beginning of time, and that is the practice of communing over food. And as your shepherd host, Jesus invites you to dine with him. He invites you to dine with him as his sheep. And in our present age, It is the Lord's Supper where Jesus communes with us and tells us that we belong to him. This is the temporary means of signifying his presence amongst his people. And in the age to come, we will no longer struggle with any sense of lack or or want. And Christ will be ours and we will be his as we dwell together with him in the house of the Lord forever. And the meal Jesus calls his people to partake of, the Lord's Supper, anticipates the meal that we will one day partake of when we join Christ unhindered in his heavenly presence. And currently we eat as sojourners, temporarily traversing this earth as our shepherd leads us, but one day we will permanently dine with him in the eternal home where we will have no want. In a moment, 
Your under-shepherd, the shepherds whom Christ has placed over his church, will prepare you to eat. But before they do, on this Lord's day, let us again be reminded of the sure presence of our good shepherd. As someone was known for saying, the loneliest moment in someone's life is when they're watching their whole world fall apart and all they can do is stare blankly. This statement is never ultimately true for the Christian. Thank God that God will never leave nor forsake his people. Now we started the the sermon with anti-Psalm 23. Let us end with Psalm 23. This may not be in your tradition at this church, it's not even the tra- at the tradition that, as, at the church that I serve, but I invite you to recite this psalm out loud with me, all six verses from Psalm 23. It says, "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul." He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise of your presence and leading. Thank you for sending your son who was both sheep and shepherd. Thank you, O Christ, for giving your life so that we could have hope in you. And as we pray that, I, and as I pray, I pray that you would uplift and uphold your people, wherever they are right now, whether they are going through the valley of the shadow of death or whether they are near green pastures and still waters, your promise remains true. You are with us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.